Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest, and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. Today, a session for you on one of our eight timeless principles of investing. So today, uh, rebalancing, which um, I'm just trying to think if there's a way to actually put that into a coin, a, a short phrase, is essentially taking money off at the highs and feeding it back in at the lows. It really is a magical principle yep. and um, it's proven through studies, academic papers, that regular rebalancing will not only protect your downside, it will actually improve your returns over time. In terms of an analogy, I think in the book we talk about the idea of having a balanced wardrobe. You know, If you've got six pairs of jeans in, in the cupboard at home and you go out shopping for some new clothes, you're not going to go and buy more of what you've already got. If you've got older clothes that need moving out of the wardrobe, then you move those out and you replace them. And it's a little bit the same with rebalancing. It's something that the professional fund managers do, um, and it's a critical part of managing your portfolio. And this is what people are finding out right now is that we've had a fantastic uh, decade. But if you don't peel some of the money off at the highs, getting ready to feed it back into the lows, um, I think already in the space of a few weeks, some of our index is heading back to back. well, let's see, back to 2013 <laughs> levels. So in fact, you'll be giving a lot back. <laughs> yeah. So in less than a month, we've seen effectively seven years of index prices just wiped off. Yep. And that's why that's why like, life comes at you quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just goes back to the old Mandelbrot. Um, quote, you know, take a profit. Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, that, that, that is really what rebalancing is all, all about. So, yeah. uh, Steve, I might just hand over to you. I think in the previous episode, we talked about the quilt of returns. And I think it's a really powerful resource for people just to get this concept drilled into your head. Yep. Is that no investment in terms of a, a country or a sector or a style, nothing just, trees don't grow to the sky. What happens is yep. um, investments perform for a period, whether it's a cycle or a few years or whatever it is, but at some point they get very expensive and that's when you, you really must rebalance, take a profit and live to fight another day instead of the, the committing the cardinal sin of giving it all back again. Yeah. And that's where the quilt of returns is so powerful because you can see that this applies to all the different asset classes, it applies to developed markets, emerging markets and sectors. The worst performers become the best the best performers then subsequently become the worst. And I... Rebalancing is a really fascinating idea. And I need to go back again. I'm always harping on about buy and hold, and that's because I think it's uh, uh, wrong for most people. The reason why is buy and hold, again, as we discussed in the last session, buy and hold was developed as a one-time bet. If you had a bunch of money now, where would be the best way to get a return? And Markowitz, you know, blah, 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 came up with you know, you should do it this way. Investing is not a one-time bet. Right? So let me give you a really, really simple example. Your superannuation is paid every month. 
you put a hundred bucks in, and I think I've talked about this in other sessions. You put a hundred bucks in, and you do that twelve times. You know, if you're doing it monthly, or twenty-six if you do it fortnightly. So, the argument is from buy and hold. Well, you just keep buying, but the fund managers themselves rebalance. Now, if you said to me, "Oh, well, you just buy and hold because you can't predict the future," and I would say, "All right, well, why are you rebalancing?" Rebalancing is predicting the future because what you're saying is, oh, we better take a bit off the top. Well, why if it's going to go higher? Why wouldn't you just leave it there? When we were talking about this before, Steve, as well, when people say, well, just buy and hold because the index goes up over time. Well, isn't that itself a prediction about well, the future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, the other thing is what people don't realise is, if, and this is the importance of rebalancing. Let's say you buy at a dollar, right? And people say, oh, it'll go up over time. All right, okay. In 2000 in the US, the Cape was 44, right? It was a market top. And it's an extreme example, but it, it proves our point. If you'd have bought then to 2020, you've made virtually about 3% a year, right? Now, in actual fact, you made nothing once you take away fees and inflation and taxes and all that sort of stuff. Now, if you'd have bought at 2003, you'd have done a little bit better. Why? Because you bought 50% cheaper than where it was. So the idea that you can't time a market is a bit of a furphy. The reason why I don't want you to time the market is because if you take your money away, I don't get paid fees. So that's the industry point of view. Harsh, but fair. I was just thinking for English listeners, a fur fee is a fallacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, you know, but what I'm saying is you always had this story of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, but you just keep buying. Oh, I got the sack last week and I haven't got any money. Oh, well, you're a bugger of a position, aren't you? So it's not applicable to everybody. The other thing is too, you've got to realise, again, as you, if you look at investing as a, a multiple timeframes of having different bets, if I said to you, listen, Pete, at the moment I'll give you 2%, you might say, all right, well, that's not very good. I'll give you a few bucks. But if I come back next year and say, look, the market's crashing, now I'll offer you 12%, you would say, all right, well, now's the time to put in a lot of money, right? You put in a lot of money, you make a lot of money like you've done over the last 10 years, say we're in the US. Then I come back to you, and this is the really important bit. The odds have changed, right? You're not getting 12% now. The odds now are saying, Pete, you'll probably get nothing and you might lose a lot of your capital. That's when you would say, gee, I better take a bit of money off the table to be sure. People get fooled by finance industry people saying, oh, you can't time the market. And then they do these cherry picking exercises. They manipulate the stats to show you that, you know, you'd have done all right. And this is the classic, oh, you know, you get 8% over the long term. Okay, how long's the long term? 120 years. Okay, I don't know whether I'll be investing that <laughs> long, right? So that's why I say, again, it depends on when you get in the market and when you get out of the market. For sure. I went to an event last year, high-profile funds managers. I won't mention the names. Basic gist of the, the whole thing was it, there's still time to get in. You know, the US market's up 400%, but yeah. previous cycles, it's done more. And it's like, well... And the return's crap. The return's like 1.5% dividend. Yeah, and it, but it's more just the risk-reward uh, ratio. It's just so dramatically skewed to the downside. Of course, now they're back on... You know, uh, on the media channel, say, well, you know, maybe it's time be to pick up a bargain. <laughs> so, yeah, gee whiz, thanks for the uh, the heads up. But um, but yeah. just on that, Pete, you, you bring a really important point because what people do at the market top, and this is what's been going on for about 12 months or two years, everybody's talking about the capital gain, hmm. right? 
Ben Graham, a hundred years ago, was talking about the yield, mm. right? Warren Buffett talks about the yield. And if I said to you, oh, Pete, we're, we're currently offering about, you know, probably 0.5 over the next 10 years. And you said, oh, well, that's not very good. And I said, well, and look, um, because the cape's really high, the market's overvalued, you'll probably lose half of your capital. You would say, oh, well, Jesus, I better sell some of my stocks. But the problem is people look at it and, and always say, well, where's the, where's the stock market going to finish? Mm. The economists say, oh, look, it's at three and I think it'll finish at four. Rather than saying, well, look, the earnings yield at the moment is three and the earnings yield at the end of the year, if you get in then, will be one and a half. That's where your superannuation is getting in. Yeah. So the dividend yield, I haven't checked this week, but uh, a couple of weeks ago in the US for the S&P was down at 1.67 or yep. 1.7% near enough. So really, in real terms, you can only make money on the capital gain when you get to that phase of the cycle. It has been lower, I think, once before during the tech bubble. Uh, but essentially, there is no yield. Uh, well, it's high risk. Who wants to have half a million bucks exposed? You've got to look at the risk and the reward. The risk is, well, if I'm wrong, you might make 3% or 5%. Okay. If I'm right, you might lose 50 to 60%. Or and, worse. <laughs> and that's what happens in the market cycles. You know, people are, are reaching for yield at the moment because cash and bonds are awful. But as Warren Buffett said, look, cash is an awful option but it's a bucket load better than having your money in the market dropping 30 and 40%. And the benefit of cash, and this gets back to rebalancing with the uncorrelated asset, the benefit of cash is when the market crashes, you can go, fantastic, I've got cash. In fact, you know, most of our clients are saying, mate, we, we love this market crash. Why? Because they've got cash. The hardest thing is then is when everything goes on sale, is working out what Which one's your buy? Yeah. Kid in the candy store. You made another good point on uh, forecasts because it's just an exercise. Maybe it's a necessary evil. We certainly have to do it as accountants in businesses. You have to do budgets and forecasts. And, yeah. You know, that's, that's how a business has to operate. But when it comes to economic forecasts, you know, we start the year at 7,000. And the, the economists put out their estimates. Oh, well, we'll probably finish the year at 7,700. We're not even through the first quarter. And we're already thinking, well, gee, it could finish at three or four at this rate. Yep. The forecasting of that nature is not only next to useless, it's actually worse than useless because it, it gives people a, a false sense of... Uh, Security. Yes, an, ex- an, ex- an expectation of a range of outcomes, which yeah. isn't real. All the expert predictions are garbage. They're all garbage. And I'm not being rude as in, you know, being aggressive, but I'm just saying, you know, as I as I said all the time, you the market falls 20%. Who would go into a meeting in November for argument's sake and they say, righto, Steve, uh, next year, what do you think? I reckon a 50% decline. I reckon a world pandemic virus um, that wipes out airlines. Everyone would go, what are you, an idiot? It's as good as a prediction as the bloke who said, oh, I think... I think we'll go up, you know, like they all do, oh, about 8 or 10%. Mm. Why? Because that's the average return. You make a good point, actually, because as a group FC, we used to have to do the necessary evil of the <laughs> annual budget and you'd go to each cost centre, give us your costs, give us your expected revenues, da da da. You compile it all into a budget. Now, let's say you've done that uh, 30 June last year. Well, so far we've had droughts which weren't in the budget. We've yep. had bushfires. Uh, the most catastrophic bushfires yep. in decades yep. uh, and followed by a global pandemic. Yep. So if you wonder when Japanese businesses are doing these 100-year business plans, but what you really need is some kind of a rolling forecast or you know, yeah, but or now casting, I guess, is the what, new uh, Yeah, buzzword. what you want to do is you just want to look at what the odds are. Hmm. 
you know, if you come to me, if we know about market cycles, right, we know that. They've been going on for 180 years. If you look at it and say, Steve, I'm offering you 1%, okay, well, I don't want any part of it. And as Buffett says, you don't have to swing for every pitch. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is wait for the fat pitch. What's the fat pitch? Steve, at some stage now, I don't know when, but at some stage, according to history, you're going to get a market bottom that's going to offer you, you know, 12%. That's when you want to swing. And the other thing is too, the industry says, oh, yeah, but you can't pick the bottom. I don't need to pick the bottom. I just need to pick the, you know, the final 20% from the crash because that's what will deliver my returns. And it's a furphy to say, oh, you know, you can't pick the bottom. And as I said, you don't need to. I invested a lot of money in April 2009. That was a month after the market bottomed. I didn't pick the bottom, which is very sad. But I can tell you I made a bucket load because I bought banks at 20 odd bucks and 15 bucks. And so I'm just proving the point of saying, well, I don't need to bet on March the 9th, 2009 to get it right. You know, you could have invested even from 2010 and still made lots of money. And so again, why were they good times? The market had crashed. It was offering great yields. And the CAPE ratio had gone from about 27 back to about 15 or 14. And what does that say? That tells you what the odds are. And at 27, the CAPE ratio is saying, listen, take a bit of money off the table. Mm-hmm. But you get greedy because you make 300% and you go, oh, look, yeah, I could withstand a 50% fall. It's like, I'll bet you can't. Mm. Oh, look, we've seen this in real estate too. You know, people think, oh, it's okay. There's plenty of fat built into yeah, the yeah. system. It was the island housing bubble. In Britain, it was people with 100% leverage and yep. market went up 50%. And they, well, there's plenty of fat there. But then when things unravel, mining towns in Australia, we saw the same thing. Yep. Before we look at a rebalancing example in practice, you touched on a really important psychological point there. And that is when you've picked a winner, you know, a, a great investment that's done 100, 200, 300%. Yep. Uh, there's a few things going on in your brain that make it pretty difficult to rebalance. One is you've got some kind of bragging rights. You're because, a smart ass. Yeah, and it, this is one of the reasons you really shouldn't talk. No one ever tells you about their losers. No, I remember that from uh, my days in the mining industry. Uh, is that um, you All really, young boys do. You really oughtn't to spend uh, too much time talking about your investments with other people because as soon as you introduce some kind of an ego yeah, into yeah. the equation – it starts maybe just clouding the investment decision. Yep. And one of the hardest things is when you've picked a real uh, rip-snorting investment, you know, if you sell it, then you, you can no longer brag about yeah, this yeah, amazing yeah, investment yeah. in your portfolio. Yep. Now, one of the things you can do, obviously, is rebalance and take some of the profit and leave some in, depending on the valuation. But the cardinal sin, and I'm, uh, I've been through this, and I'm sure you must have many times is that you pick a great investment that doubles and then you watch it go all the way back down. Got one right at the moment. And yes, <laughs> and you you just, you kick yourself thinking, well, why didn't I rebalance? And yep. it's a lesson that, uh, you know, history is a great teacher, as they say, but if you don't listen, you get punished. If you look at that in terms of the, the cycle investing, and I use this one because it's so stark, 82 to 2000, the US went up 666%, 16 to 18% per year. Any idiot made money. From 2000, you lost 50%. Then it doubled again. Then you lost another 50. From March 2000 to 2009, you lost about 70%. Now, you lost 70% of your 600, right? So 7.6 is 42. You lost about 420% 
of your 600. 180% now over 27 years, roughly about seven to eight a year, okay? So people will say, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, no idiot sort of, no idiot does that. They just keep buying and, you know, putting in. Well, I'm sorry, no. If you were 55 in the year 2000, you've now got to 65 and you've lost 69%. And people say, oh, yeah, but you would have, you know, you would have dollar cost averaged in or, you know, you would have, um, like they do in super, just feed it in. But again, it proves my point. Why the hell would you want to start going, oh, the market's, you know, we don't know where the market's going to go. The Cape's at 44. But by all means, put in $1,000 a month. What, until it drops to 25, then goes up to, I think it was 29 again, and then collapses another 50%. I mean, that's insanity because you can simply look at the odds and say, well, what's the dividend yield? It's awful. Okay, I don't want anything to do with it. And there's alternative investments, property, bonds. You know, bonds have done fantastic. Property's done well. You know, it's it's not always about just buying and holding, whether it's property, antiques, you know, art, watches, whatever it is. One of the uh, people will probably find this out in 2020, the way things are, are panning out, is that if you're fully invested, buying at any price, which is essentially, uh, we've been hearing a lot about this for the last few years, and that's simply a construct um, that's come about because we've been in a, we've seen no negative annual returns for 10, 11, 12 years, yep. which is completely not normal in, in historic terms. And people have said, well, you can't pick them up, time the market, so just buy at any price. The problem will come when you get to the bottom of the market, when there's bargains everywhere and people aren't, they're not able to take advantage, not only because they don't have cash as they should, but secondly, because at the bottom of the market, people are worried about losing their job. Yeah, they're they too need frightened. a buffer. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're worried, property investors are worried about um, tenants defaulting. So it doesn't seem prudent to be investing, even when you can see a screaming bargain, you think, yep. oh, but I might need the cash. Yep. And uh you know, this is something that it's hard to explain unless you've been through recessions. And uh, sadly for me as a Brit, I've seen my fair share of them. Uh, certainly a couple of brutal recessions that we've lived through. And it's easy in hindsight to say, oh, well, in 2009, look at all those bargains. But the, the thing is, stock prices aren't going down because people are buying, you know. <laughs> so, and this is, you know, there's some big opportunities coming up over this year. Yep. But if, you, if you're not in cash and ready to, to benefit from them, yep. then you're not going to get that. The practical thing about rebalancing is this. In your asset allocation, you say, all right, I've got 10000 per stock. I've got 20 stocks or whatever. $10,000, you say, right, I'll put in 5000 to start with. And I've got 5000 in cash against that investment. So you've got that 20 times. People will go, oh my God, you're 50% in cash. If the stocks fall, you've got money to put back in for a start. So then you're lowering your cost. So whether you rise or whether you fall, when it comes back to rebalancing, people will say, well, how much do I rebalance? Take it back to your original allocation. If your 10,000 together becomes 12, we'll sell $1,000 worth of stock. So you've got six in cash and six in stock. If the market is really cheap, then what you might do is you might say, well, I've got 10,000, I'll put seven in stocks because I'm pretty close to the low. And I'll put three in cash. There's what we were talking about last time, uncorrelated assets. Now, if you pick it and you go, oh, that's a bugger. It went down 20%. No worries. I've got $3,000 there and I'll put some of that in. Okay. And that's the way you rebalance. When, as I was saying about my mate before, who was grumbling about a lost investment, you've got to look at it in its totality. And, rather, and what you find is, rather perversely, you will make more money 
rebalancing between uncorrelated assets than you will in either of the assets. Yeah, so you just reminded me, actually, in our book, Low Rates, High Returns, great, very simple, uh, well, it's really a stylized example. Mm. Let's say you've got $100,000, 50-50 stocks and cash. Now, the stock market crashes in half. We wouldn't recommend it because we don't recommend you invest when markets are expensive and prone to 50% downturns. But go with the example. If you then rebalance the 50-50 allocation, market doubles back to where it started, you don't get back to where you've started from a portfolio point of view. You've actually made Made money, made profit. So that's, I mean, it's a stylized example, of course, but it shows how rebalancing works. So let's take a um, real example if you look at the quilt of returns by by country, what you find is that over, say, 20 years, people talk a lot, a lot about this average return. And you often yeah. find you know, countries like Australia might do 7 or 8% per annum um, as a arithmetical average. And some of the worst performing countries, may, you know, in real terms, close to zero over 20 years. But what the quilt of returns essentially shows you is um, you have years of tremendous outperformance followed by you know, terrible underperformance. Australia case in point, uh, may, maybe an 8% average return or so, but 2009, the market effectively halved. And then yep. in 2010, you might have done 70, 80%, depending on what you invested in. Um, so well, let's take the example of Turkey. And the reason we use that is partly because it is actually over 20 years, one of the worst performing markets. Yeah. I mean, if you just bought the index or a Turkey ETF 20 years ago, by the time you've stripped out inflation and fees and so on, you've really done nothing. Yep. And yet the reason Turkey is a good example is that if you actually invested and if you look at the quilt of returns when it was a massive underperformer, 2003, you did 125% gain. Yep. All the way through to 2005, you effectively made 200%, give or take. Yep. Now, obviously, as we always say, trees don't grow to the sky. If you get a 200% gain, whatever you do, take a profit because yeah, at yeah. some point you know that that market is going to underperform. And sure enough, financial that's crisis comes around. Someone else who's smart takes the profit yeah, and right. starts driving the price down. So, And this is why rebalancing is a magical concept. 62% drawdown in 2009. But of course, if you've already rebalanced and taken your profit, you can feed it, get feed back in at the lows. And then in 2010, another tremendous outperformance. Yeah. So... Even an investment in a country that's really struggled economically has delivered awful returns over 20 years. And there were, there were at least four years there where you've experienced enormous outperformance. But of course, the flip side of that is you need to be rebalancing and out of the market when it's expensive. That's exactly right. That's not just cherry picking a country. I mean, you, you can actually replicate that exercise. And that's why we always say, look at the quilt of returns and you'll see uh, it's the same with sectors. You know, the tech sector got absolutely ruined in 2009. Yep. But then you've had massive outperformance now. And they're doing it again now. And in recent years, the most hated sector in the US has been energy. Ten years time, you'll find that from the peak, tech has done less well, energy has done better. It's just the same old patterns. Yeah, they, um, it's a, just on that, Pete, when you say to people, look, use your superannuation as an example, and you get these, you know, you get a series of bets and you can choose to bet or not, right? Don't you, as Buffett said, you don't have to swing at everything, right? So you go to the races, and in in the first the first race, you back a donkey at fifty to one, and you win, you know, ten thousand dollars or whatever for you is a big amount. Imagine if I said to you, listen, the best thing to do is just go and whack it all in again, right? Go in again, 
don't take, no, don't take any off the sidelines. No, 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 go, go in and whack it in. <laughs> You'd be an idiot if you did that. When you look at the market like that, you go, oh, okay, let's take a little bit off. Now, it's not as if we're actually flying blind. You know, we've got market cycles. You can see them. That's why we use the Cape Ratio to say this is like going to the horses and expecting to get 100 to 1 odds on a 2 to 1 on favourite. You know, take some money off the table. And it's, again, this constant lure of getting people to buy and hold, you know, just buy and hold and just put it in, just feed it in, whether it's dollar cost averaging or, you know, all of that sort of stuff. It's this constant idea that you've got to be in the market because you'll miss out. You know, oh, if you rebalance, you'll have to pay taxes. Well, I can tell you, you'll do a lot better than anybody who just buys and holds and suffers through an event that loses 30 to 40% that I may remind people happens about once every 10 years. And so that means most of us as investors will suffer two or three of those cataclysmic events in our investing lifetime. That's why your super goes from a million bucks to 600,000 or even 700, you know, and then you've got to work your way back up again. And it takes a long time. I just want to mention uh, the three C's that we talked about right back in episode one, cost, choice and control. This is something that's really just gets drilled home at a time like this. When you read or hear of fund managers say, no, no, we're going to be 100% invested. It's too expensive to be in cash. And you're just thinking, well, too expensive for whom? You know, (laughs) know, if the world's going to hell in a handbasket, (laughs) if the world's going to hell in a handbasket, I don't want. Uh, to be at the whims of somebody else, 100% invested, yep. when I'm quite comfortable 80% in cash just waiting for better opportunities. Back in the days when ETFs weren't so widespread, it was difficult to invest overseas, you could have a certain level of sympathy with the concept of, well, it's very difficult to pick the peaks and troughs of a market. So therefore, you know, particularly if you're investing in individual stocks and yeah. so on. But these days, I mean, the, the investment universe has opened up so much and there are, you know, opportunities come around every year and we do this exercise at the, the end of each half and end of each year and you say, well, okay, show me the worst performers and we'll take a look, you know. And the, yep. uh, in recent years, Russia was down there. Brexit, uh, yeah, 2016. And, and then what you find is, you know, the, you know, the Greek stock market collapsed in the face of its terrible economic issues and then suddenly the next year it's up 50%. You know, people yep. say, well, why would you invest in Greece? <laughs> so we'll focus on the statistics, not the stories. And that's even through a period where unemployment is 18%. Greek bonds and Turkish and Russian bonds <laughs> have yeah. been spectacular returns. Yes. Yeah. So it's a key concept, uh, rebalancing. You'll, what you find is, in many ways, it helps you to, uh, it helps you to take a profit It also helps you to have cash available when opportunities come around. Be systematic. And every paper shows that regular rebalancing will improve returns through the cycle. Absolutely. Um, One of the things we were saying all the way through last year and sounding like broken records, no doubt, but the market is not going to stay at previously unsustained levels. And sure enough, no, it won't. So that's it for today. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. 
Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.